0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 16th, 2016. We will be doing our light episode today with one slight variation. Be reading to start off with my uh, comments regarding the further developments regarding the sins of Tully and Travigian. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which... Help you to think biblically. Help you to think critically and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to, you know, open up the Bible. You've heard of this book before. And compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets prophetesses self-appointed apostles apostolates and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes those who we need to be listening to whose books we need to be buying whose curriculum we need to be studying instead of the word of god to see if what they're saying actually squares with what god's word said or if they're actually generally teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach it's oftentimes the second one. Just want to let you know that. All right, big day today. Big day today. Um, You know, the story broke uh, earlier today that there are new allegations regarding Tully and Chavidjian. I do happen to know some of the details regarding that, uh, uh, being that uh, I was brought into the loop. Uh, Some of those I can't exactly share with you, but I did write a statement regarding this, and uh, the reason why I wrote the statement was specifically to... Put down some of the misinformation and misstatements that are being made about me, which I think are important because, well, you know, it's, yeah, I find it fascinating that certain people have decided to take advantage of somebody's um, sin, you know, to try to score some theological points, but by spreading misinformation, yeah, I don't generally consider that to be one of the fruits of the Spirit, but, you know, hey, let's uh, go ahead and take a look at my statement. This is uh, from my captain's blog over at PyreChristian.com uh, it, this morning, the disheartening news broke that Tullian, uh, that's Tullian Tevigian, had lost his job at Willow Creek Presbyterian, and that the majority of the board of the Liberate Network have resigned amid new allegations of wrongdoing another I- involving another inappropriate relationship prior to the affair, which led to his resignation at Coral Ridge. Now, this is truly a tragic turn of events, and my prayers rise to God our Father on behalf of all who are involved. This latest revelation sadly shows that Tullian still had some sin that he was running from rather than repenting of and being forgiven. God has now stepped in and has clearly ended Tullian's running. I pray that despite how painful this is, that it will result in Tullian's repentance, forgiveness, and him bearing uh, true fruit in keeping with repentance. My heart also breaks, also for Pastor Kevin Labey, who our labby, who had been utterly, who has to be utterly heartbroken by this newest uh, revelations and the decisions that he's been forced to make in light of this new information. Some are now calling on me and demanding that I admit that I was wrong in my support of Tullian. You, you gotta love it when someone wants to kick you when you're down, and I'm pretty sure that's not one of the fruits of the spirit. Uh, When I questioned these people and asked them to be specific about what I was supporting Tullian for, it is clear that they've either been misinformed or have misunderstood the principle on which I've taken a stand regarding Tullian. So let me make this clear by giving three examples of my defenses of Tullian. Number one, my public defense of Tullian after his removal from Coral Ridge Presbyterian began when he accepted the position on the staff at Willow Creek Presbyterian. Many were condemning Tullian and Willow Creek and accusing them of bringing Tullian into a ministry position, but these allegations were false. Tullian was not brought to Willow Creek to preach or to teach or to minister. He was brought on staff in a back office support role. There was a kerfuffle caused by my challenging the claims of those who were saying that Tullian was now doing ministry work. However, those making the claims... That, had been brought, that he'd been brought on staff at Willow Creek to do ministry, they were wrong. Two, I was accused of being inconsistent with how I treat my friend Tullian as opposed to how I, I critique Mark Driscoll. Comparing Driscoll to Tullian is like comparing grapefruits and bananas. Here's why. Driscoll fled from church discipline and claimed he heard God's voice telling him that the discipline plan put in place by the board at Mars Hill was a trap And now he is restoring himself to ministry. B. Tullian resigned and submitted to church discipline after his sin was brought to light and has since been under the watchful care of a PCA pastor and elders. The fact that Tullian is now being further disciplined by his pastor is undeniable proof that there is no comparison between Tullian and Driscoll and that I wasn't being inconsistent by not treating them The same, so yeah, yeah. Keep that in mind. I mean, what which which, um, church discipline did Driscoll submit to? By the way, yeah, (laughs) Tullian has not only submitted to church discipline; he's been disciplined again. So, number three, I recently challenged yet another blogger's claim. That Tullian had been restored to ministry, despite the fact that nothing could be further from the truth. It is important to note that even at the time of the relaunch of the Liberate Network, that Tullian was not a part of the network's leadership. This is a fact. Uh, When it was pointed out that Tullian had accepted a speaking engagement to discuss his uh, book, One Way Love... I noted that he was doing so as a layman not as a pastor. It was then that several people claimed that because Tullian had been defrocked and that he could never again publicly speak authoritatively about Jesus or the Bible, when I challenged uh, that you know uh, the Bible I challenged what these men were saying on biblical grounds, it was when that happened that Twitter decided to melt down. Yeah, you know, that was when all the real troubles really began for me last week. So I still stand by my position that The Bible nowhere teaches that a layman who had formerly been a pastor, but removed from the office with cause, can never again publicly tell people about Jesus or teach anyone other than his immediate family what the Bible says, which, by the way, was the hard legalistic line that some were taking. My point in all of this has been to admonish Christians to speak the truth. That's been my point the whole time. If you don't like Tullian or disagree with the theology he espoused in his books, you're welcome to do so. If you believe that he should never be restored to any kind of ministry, you're free to say so and to make your case. If you think that it was far too soon after Tullian's sin for him to be appearing anywhere in public, you have a right to air that opinion. But where no Christian is free is to charge someone with something they have not done, demand that they repent of sins they've never committed, or worse, demand that they obey a rule that you've invented that is not actually found in the Scripture. Rumors, false allegations, and man-made rules do not advance the truth, nor do they assist the work of the gospel. Instead, they only hinder them. Tullian's actual sins are the thing that he must daily repent of and be forgiven for. The crushing weight of the guilt of his actual sins is not made lighter by adding on to them sins that he's not committed. His load will only be made lighter through the forgiveness of his sins won by him, by Jesus Christ, who died in Tullian's place on the cross. Although I am deeply saddened by these latest revelations, I'm also thankful that God has intervened and ended Tullian's running from these other sins. Repentance can sometimes be a process. The difficulty of learning how to speak the truth about yourself in light of God's holy law can at times be daunting. But what Tullian was either fearful or unwilling for so long to confess to his pastor and his closest friends has now been brought into the light where it can be repented of and forgiven. Let us pray that he who began a good work in Tullian will bring it to completion. So that's my statement regarding Tullian and the uh, latest developments, and I, I really do mean this. Keep him, keep the church, keep everybody who's you know in, impacted by this in your prayers. And by the way, Tullian did issue a uh, a formal statement that was published at Christianity Today. And um, let me um, let me read to you what uh, uh, Tullian wrote. It's kind of they kind of wove it into the story here. Um, uh, Repentance is progressive and is often painful. Uh, It involves disclosing and dealing with the darkest places of our hearts and lives. Um, And although this has been extremely difficult for me to do, I remain committed to that painful and progressive process. Nothing grieves me more than the fact that that people are suffering because of my sins, both in my past as well as in the present. I want to be perfectly clear that I take full responsibility for this, Please pray for those who are most deeply affected, and please respect their privacy. God knows how sorry I am for all the damage I've caused and the people who have been hurt. Please please pray that the good work God has begun will be carried out to completion. So, yeah, th- there's, there's the latest. There's my comments. I don't think anything more needs to be said. Just continue to keep them in your prayers. We pray that the Holy Spirit... Will continue to convict him of his sins, bring him to true repentance, and that his life would show that in bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So let's talk about what we're going to do for the rest of today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We will be continuing with our series that we've been working our way through uh, from the uh, teachings of Jeremy Rody on the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, starting at verse 7 through chapter 7, verse
1: 4.
0: Here's Pastor Jeremy Rody
1: Good morning, everyone. Glad to have you back here for another part of Ecclesiastes. Let's bring ourselves up to speed and back into context. We were looking at chapter 6 last week, and that's where we finished up. And, of course, a great risk of oversimplification. We see again the logic that we've seen all the way throughout Ecclesiastes, that wisdom is better than foolishness, and yet... Whether you're wise or a fool, you end up in the same place, okay? Um, It's better to be satisfied than not satisfied, right? (laughs) (laughs) And yet, satisfaction is ultimately elusive. So the idea that it's better to be satisfied than unsatisfied, you would see, for example, uh... In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And then in chapter 7, though, you have this overarching corrective, or overarching limiter. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So the satisfaction we experience is only what we would call a relative satisfaction. It's better to have that relative satisfaction going through life than to not have it. And yet that's not the at the end of that we don't simply say, well, I was satisfied. That was it. The mouth continues, the appetite continues in its dissatisfaction, constantly wanting more. No sooner is it satisfied it begins working to be dissatisfied. So, we also mentioned how this puts us in slavery to our appetite and very literally in slavery to our own mouth. Sort of that bleak perspective we looked at in the opening weeks of Ecclesiastes, where we asked the question why do you get up and work every Monday? Ultimately, it's to eat. Scripture confirms this, the man that does not work shall not eat. Often quoted to me growing up. So, keep that in your arsenal if you've got young children. Yeah, so we work to eat, and then what do we do with what we eat? It's energy to work. Yeah. (laughs) So, we ourselves are, are a cycle that goes nowhere And in this respect, we're slaves. Now, this is something that human beings outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition have also recognized, that we are slaves to our physical beings. You are a slave to the demands of your lungs. Don't believe me? Do that for a few minutes. Watch your lungs rage against you and end up winning, or else you're going to pass out, and then they're going to end up winning. We're slaves to our lungs, we're slaves to our mouths, we're slaves to whether or not our heart is going to take its next beat, right? We're slaves to these physical bodies. Now, the answer to this from the Western perspective, from the ancient Greek perspective, is that therefore the body, because it enslaves us, must be inferior, in fact, in some cases, must even be considered evil, binding, limiting, so that the ultimate freedom would be to be free from our bodies, free from the slavery of material and material things. So then you see the underpinnings of what will be called Gnosticism, where you have this very hard bifurcation between that which is physical and that which is spiritual. And the whole point, then, is to be free of the material or physical that binds you and enslave you and trap you, and to be a completely and purely spiritual being that is free from all of these necessities, from all of this slavery. That's Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism uh, gets embraced early in the Christian tradition, in this vein, such that an arch-heretic will even say the God of the Old Testament, he is the one that created your body and made you a slave to it. A different God, the God of the New Testament, is the one who puts you to death in this body and sets you free to live spiritually forever. We think, well, how stupid. How unchristian. And yet, This is precisely the sort of reflections you find at Christian funerals. Ah, they're free from the pains of this world. They're free from the necessities of this world. They're in a better place. They're no longer hungry. They're no longer tired. They're no longer stressed. They're no longer in pain. They're no longer in bondage to all this physical stuff. They've been released. They're free. That's it. They float around in heaven forever. That's not Christianity at all. That's pagan religion. That's pagan religion. The resurrection of Jesus flies in the face of all of that, doesn't it? good to be in your body we were made for our bodies our bodies are good material is good physics and physicality are good the world is good what we need to be saved from is not the material the matter or our bodies what we need to be freed from is the slavery and futility and curse that have been afflicted upon our bodies If that's removed, then we may well breathe, for example, in the new heavens and the new earth, and yet not out of necessity. We may indeed eat and drink, as Isaiah points that great big party on the mountaintop with the fat meats and the rich wines. We will eat and drink and enjoy, and yet not live by them out of necessity, We will see and have our life in God, and all these other things will simply be enjoyments of what he has made. In other words, the bondage to our flesh is removed, not our flesh. The bondage to material is removed, not material. And so this is why, of course, heaven, where we are disembodied, you know, the thief on the cross, our loved ones... The body goes into the ground, the soul goes up to heaven, but that is temporary. In fact, if you go looking through the scriptures, I'm gonna, I want to get an idea of what the scriptures have to say about heaven, where the disembodied souls of those who die go. You will find shockingly little, shockingly little, But what you will find all throughout the Old Testament, in the form of promise, in the form of prophecy, very often, with an eye toward the phrase, the last day, and what that means, is you find the world physically restored, and us physically restored in our bodies. To get your mind in the right place, you're thinking, I'm going to spend eternity, not disembodied in heaven floating around, I'm going to spend eternity in Eden. In Eden. Now that gets your mind in the right place, and there's even better news than that, because while Eden was good, what we will inherit is Eden made perfect. The new heavens and the new earth. Now when you go to the scriptures and you look for the concrete reality of the world healed, the material healed people healed in body and soul well then you find it all through the old testament all through the new and in fact i think in our, in one of our readings today you hear that i think it's the peter the second peter reading you hear the new heavens and the new earth promised that's the end goal okay so when we reflect on this chapter 6 verse 7 our the slavery we have to our mouths and the various aspects in which we are enslaved to our bodies and enslaved to material, the answer to that is not to be released from material and be spiritual forever. The answer is rather to have the material be released from the curse and be returned to us. And that's precisely what is happening in Jesus' resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. He rises, and you even see this already in that his while he rises in his body, literally physically, his body, born of Mary, that body. Even so, his body is not bound in the way that it was before. For example, he will pass through the locked doors of the upper room, right? Pointing uh, to uh, uh, pointing out to us our future, and the future aspect of our bodies, where, though they are very much material, though it is very much my body, your body, our specific bodies, they are so changed, so transformed, so glorified, so freed from the curse of slavery that's been imposed upon them that they can do things that we couldn't otherwise fathom. I mean, in theory, go all eternity without eating a thing, you'd still be alive. Because the wages of sin is death, right? And if you're sinless, you're not going to die. Whether you eat or drink, whether you uh, breathe, no matter what, you're not going to die. All right, so we have we glimpse that that we are looking forward to. And we see here a great error that is constantly trying to infect the church, that material stuff the bo- our bodies, the world is bad, wrong. Our bodies, and world, uh, our bodies and the world have been corrupted by sin and thus also been placed under the curse. All right. Now, as he goes this middle road, it's better to be wise than a fool. And yet, you both end up in the great green garbage can of the earth. It's better to be satisfied relatively speaking, as opposed to one who's dissatisfied all the time. And yet the overarching reality is one can never be fully satisfied with this life. One of the great themes of Ecclesiastes. Stop thinking this is it. Stop pretending this is it. Stop listening to the collective lie of humanity that says, oh yeah, this is great, isn't it for you? No. At best... That's a temporary experience. It's one of the... I think it's one of the great lies of Satan, to be honest with you, that he does through our media, especially to our young people, maybe. I know I experienced this, uh, undoubtedly victimized by it. But growing up, I'm going to date myself terribly, you college kids, all your youth. I remember back in the days when MTV actually played music all the way back in the early 90s. <laughs> if you go to music TV, MTV, it's no longer music at all. Well, what, that, what MTV does, now this is, this is unwitting. I mean, no one, I don't believe there's some arch fat cat sitting in some office going, oh, I'm going to perpetuate this lie. Okay, no, there's just business people running their business, doing their thing, programming their shows, that's all it is. But what Satan effectively does through media is this. Year after year, he presents to you a new set of fresh faces, right? Perpetual youth. And how does that perpetual youth live? However it wants. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, godlessness, whatever. And the year goes by and the season goes by and those people leave and a new one comes. And you never get the backstory, do you? So what you're met met with is this constant image of perpetual youth. No consequence. Live this way. It's good. It's great. It's what we're doing. And if you have opportunity like me to watch this uh, for a decade or so, you start to get hip to it. And the news stories start to kind of trickle in here and there about those folks that you watched five years ago and the disaster and wreck that is their lives now and one guy's dead and... You start to see the reality. But that reality is all behind the facade. The facade, the show, the program is that it's just this is how life is, and it's perfect, and there's no consequence, and live this way. It's a lie. It's a lie. All right, so over and against that, we have the logic of Ecclesiastes that says stop buying into the lie. That's not how it is not how it is there is reality there is consequence there's heartbreak there is sorrow and there is futility in all of it so after Solomon has gone through his you know relativistic better to be this way than that way better to be this way than that way but look in the big picture doesn't much matter it's all vanity that sentiment is captured in chapter 6 verse 12 For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. So in the end, on final analysis, it's as if Solomon sort of throws up his hands and says, who even knows? And as he's going to point out later, because if you're foolish, sometimes that works out better for you than if you're wise. If you're wicked, sometimes that works out better for you than if you're good. So, who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. That's the shadow existence whether we realize it or not. We live a shadow existence. And so to live in a shadow world with a shadow existence and to believe or think or tell yourself that this is real... (laughs) That is the greatest error. That is the greatest falsehood. Okay. What God incarnate does is gives us something real. I, I'm going to talk about this in my Christmas sermon. Uh, how the Word, the meaning, becomes flesh. As God becomes flesh, it transforms human flesh and human existence from a life of shadow to a life of substance, from a life that passes and is gone to a life that is eternal. All right, so those are some of the themes and ways that Christ answers uh, Ecclesiastes. Again, not in the way of like, okay, that's it. The answer to all these tensions is Jesus. Got it? problem solved, but rather in the way that the tensions of Ecclesiastes constantly, constantly present themselves to our minds, and we constantly return to Christ and give answer. Living in that tension would be the fullness of biblical wisdom. All right, we're about to move on then into the new material of chapter 7. Before I do, is there, are there any questions or comments? Anyone want to say Anything? Okay, let's go into some very easy verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Both of these are probably, in their original context, surprising statements. Certainly the latter is much more surprising than the former. It is surprising to consider, I mean, unless you've done it before, that it's better to have a good name and a good reputation than it is, you know. Precious ointment, precious ointment could be exceedingly expensive. He's not talking about a, a bottle of, uh, you know, Axe body spray here. Uh, it's it's a, it could be exceedingly expensive, you know, like the equivalent of a car or a house or something like that. Uh, this this item of extreme great monetary value, it's better to have a good name than that. okay. So that's a little bit of a surprising reversal. And, of course, it shows us how important and valuable a reputation is. But it sets us up for an even stronger reversal. The next line, good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Which is crazy. Because remember, again, Solomon's whole paradigm is what's under the sun. So he's not, it's not, it's not Christianized. It's, it's, not, it's not, well, yeah, the day you die is better because you're free from the pain and you're with Jesus and all of that. That's not where he's at. He's with theology under the S-U-N, the sun. It is better to die and leave this behind, even if that means annihilation, even if that means a blank screen, even if that means you don't experience any, just like before you were born, it's better to be over and done with it than be brand new and facing it. Again, with, with new kids, I've had the opportunity to reflect on that a little. You know, as they're laying in my arms, it's, you almost you, know, you wrestle with those thoughts. You do. I've brought you into a cruel world. You will go through hell. and there's nothing I can do about it. I will keep it away from you as long as I can. But the day's going to come where I'm impotent, too. You know? That's just the reality. It's a hard reality. So uh, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And that sets the stage for the following wisdom. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of pancakes or feasting. <laughs> All right? Um Let's just let's just get the whole section here. Yeah, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. And here's a strange line if there ever was one. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pause there and discuss. the The argument continues into the next verse, but we'll pause there. Okay. So the day of death is better than the day of birth. That's an indictment. It's an indictment on this world. Um, you know, from a certain angle, it's an indictment against God. And if God does not answer with Christ, that indictment stands. It may sound like a strange thing. Like you know, these days, who who is it that's indicting God and publishing books? That, it, that indict God, the atheists. But if you go back through the history of Christendom, those who indict God, those who publish books indicting God, are called prophets and psalmists. <laughs> <laughs> um, Luther, Luther I, uh, I'm paraphrasing him. He says at the point where in which you hate God and blaspheme against him and despise him for what you're going through, You're closer to him than when you say, oh, it's okay, it's all right, everything's fine. No, no, it's not you, God, it's just the devil. I've brought this upon myself. Now, these few lines that I've shared, this thought of Luther, I've just saved you a lot of time. You could read the whole book of Job and you'd find the same same argument expanded greatly. Why? We are meant to indict God. We are meant to cry out to God, why? Why? And where are you? And why have you hidden your face from me? Now it's past the reflection from a Christian perspective now, to go away from the, the logic of Ecclesiastes from a Christian perspective. Um, it's not so easy as, well, why have you allowed this to happen? Oh, because I'm a sinner, I deserve it. Okay, true, I deserve it, and much worse, right. But that's not the complaint of the psalmist. Psalmists know they're sinners, too. They still complain. Why? They're basing their complaints upon God's own promises. You've said. Sinner though I be, you've said. So why ha- why has it not come? Why is your face hidden? Why don't you answer? Why don't you save? Why don't you deliver? We are meant to we are meant to be there by God. You know, this gets this gets to um, why I think that this chapter, chapter 7, is before there was even a cross, this is the theology of the cross. And what I mean by that is it's about calling a good thing good and an evil thing evil, as opposed to what Luther says the theologian of glory does, which is calls evil good and good evil. There's a backwardness to everything. There's a backwardness to everything. And only the Scriptures and our own suffering and set us free. Luther says what makes a theologian are three things, meditatio, tentatio, and oratio. And oratio, he means prayer. Tentatio, he means suffering, affliction. And meditatio is meditation upon the Word of God. So These three things, meditation upon the Word of God, actually suffering and being brought to the point of crisis. You see this in Job, where he's listening to all his advisors and then suddenly he screams out and what he says is the truth and he indicts God and he's like, I didn't even know what I was saying, but I said it and there it is and it's true. That's tentatio. And then oratio is the prayer. Where are you, God? Wrestling with God. Praying those psalms that Honestly, Christianity today would find impious to pray. And I think it's half the reason why much of the church has gotten rid of the psalms, or at least certain psalms. Because they don't fit our theology anymore, because our theology isn't biblical. Now, what all of this is meant to do is God wants to bring us into crisis, wants us screaming why and screaming no and yelling at him. Because he will not and does not give us answer in that way. This is what Luther will also call the hidden God. The fancy Latin phrase, Deus absconditus. That God hides himself and clothes himself in such a way that he is incomprehensible to us (gasps) apart from one thing his cross. Now in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So you're crying out, why, why, why? And there's no answer, and there's no answer. And you're not meant to find an answer, and you won't find an answer. And God wants it that way. Because He is going to drive you to the one place He does speak. And the one answer He does give. His cross. His Son whole thing that's the answer and again not an answer like okay that solves it back to our pina coladas Uh, but the answer that is constantly we must hold when that voice within us cries out why and no we don't say oh go away that's impious no we cry it out with the psalmist and then in the next breath We proclaim the answer that God has given in Christ Jesus. And in this tension, we are held. We are held in true faith. But it is a crucible. It is a crucible. Did Jesus say that? It is a cross. Take up your cross and follow me. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering. It's being a theologian of the cross. Which, by the way, every human being, wittingly or no, is already a theologian. All of us are by nature theologians of not the cross, and we must learn through study of Scripture, through suffering, and through prayer to be theologians of the cross. And in case you can't tell, I feel pretty passionately that Ecclesiastes is about the best intro you can have. Ecclesiastes pretty much sums up the entire cry and shout of humanity, um, the futility it speaks the truth of what the curse really is, and it pleads for God to give us an answer and He doesn't give us an answer in any way other than now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, so there it is, that's a sufficient answer all right now, if you're going to the house of feasting, you're not going to get any of this you know if i if I brought you over to my house uh and and uh well, I like scotch. I'll pour you a nice scotch, you know? My wife will cook a meal, we'll have a good time, but we're not going to reflect on any of this. How many you're gonna go to some Christmas parties probably this year, right? You're gonna go and you're gonna have a good time, you're gonna drink, and you're gonna do small talk, right? And eat finger foods, ask people about their children. Are you gonna come anywhere near this wisdom? Nowhere near it. Nowhere near it. Okay, so. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, are we forbidden to go to the house of feasting? Of course not. He doesn't say that. Go feast. Just realize that one is preferable to the other. You're going to learn more. You're going to get more. You're going to get better answers, more substance in the house of mourning. Maybe you're even going to start by getting the right question in the house of mourning. Again, Ecclesiastes, one of the major points of it is to put the question in our mouth and to tell us it's okay to ask the question to prepare us for that answer that God gives. Whereas in the house of feasting, they're not going to give you the question or they're going to give you the answer. They're going to give you something to dull the pain. (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's what the feast is. It's a celebration. All of this is in the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, only is that valley of the shadow of death transformed. uh, It's only transformed in the revelation of Christ, where the valley of the shadow of death takes on a new meaning in His outstretched arms, the shadow of death under which we live, move, and have our being, the shadow of His death, the shadow of the cross. That's the transformation. So we live and walk in the valley of the shadow of death and yet He has joined us and He has made that death His death. Now we are shadowed in Him and our lives have meaning in this sense. If we perceive them in light of the cross, then they have meaning. And that is the key. That's the whole logic. That's where it's driving. That's where Ecclesiastes is trying to get us. is to see That without the cross, it's all meaningless. You can't make heads or tails of it. Even Solomon in exasperation, who knows what's good for man in the end? Take or leave my advice in the end. Because life doesn't make one lick of sense. God doesn't make one lick of sense. People around you, the circumstances, the world, the way it all works, doesn't make one lick of sense without the cross. And then when you give the cross, then when you receive the word of the cross, the word of folly, the word of foolishness, that's exactly how it strikes us. Superficial, a cheap answer. Like the pastors asked a really difficult question, and somebody just blurts out, Jesus, and he goes, Right. That's how it strikes us. Foolishness, not wisdom, foolishness. And only in realizing it's the foolishness of God and committing yourself to meditatio, to the study of it. And reflecting on it in the midst of your own tentatio, your own suffering, responding to God and crying out to Him in oratio, are you deepened in the way of the cross, and do you start to see answers, and do you start to see meaning? And that's where we all are as baptized Christians. We're somewhere along the lines of interpreting our experiences in the world through the cross, and one time better than another, we see it. Sometimes we don't see it. But that's our process, and that's the great uh, joy of studying a book like Ecclesiastes.
0: All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pyrochristian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lesson from Pastor Jeremy Rody on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter six and seven. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
1: Sisioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to fighting for the faith.
2: You're listening to pirate Christian radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
3: It's yo-ho, 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 a platter it's life for me. We've sworn we know where we go.
2: Max Holliday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Yeah, just up ahead is a path that will lead us to the main highway.
0: Yeah, I, I hear the traffic from here. That was a nice little hike.
2: I do enjoy this trail. It's just a simple three-hour hike. Hey, what's that up ahead? I have no idea. Let's check it out. It looks like a journal of some sort. It's really beat up. Should we read it? Well, we've got nothing better to do. Sounds good to me.
4: Day one. Today is my first day of the Emmaus walk. My church counselor, Gary Sunshine, told me that if I went out into the wilderness and believed and trusted in Jesus, that Jesus would come and walk with me and communicate to me. So I packed enough provisions to last me for a few days. Day 2. Still no sign of Jesus. I've dedicated myself to meditating to bring myself closer to his presence. I hope it happens soon. Day 3. I think i figured out what I've been doing wrong. I haven't been trusting Jesus enough with my walk. Now I've decided to go to the deeper parts of this jungle. Because I don't think that Jesus would associate himself with just the fringes of the forest. I think he needs to see that I'm audacious, so I'm going to forget the comforts I've brought entirely.
2: Looks like some of the pages have been ripped out. It doesn't pick up again until...
4: Day nine. Today, my stock of toilet paper ran out and... Still no signs from Jesus. I should have enough food to get me back to civilization, but I think that Mr. Sunshine will be disappointed that my journey wasn't more fruitful. I think it's because I wasn't listening hard enough to Jesus. Day nine and a half. I think I'm lost. I think I took a wrong turn. Everything is starting to look really foreign and unfamiliar day 14 today my tent was attacked by a bear and was ripped to shreds i just barely escaped but i'm gonna have to start foraging for my own food i can only hope that i find my way back day 34 today i came across an indigenous tribe that was building a large metal sphere that looked far superior to any military technology. I was chased by them for about 15 miles. I'm really hungry. Day 42 I don't think I'm ever going to get out, and I just realized that I don't think I left Mr. Snuggles enough food to make it for this long. So far, still no sign of Jesus or enlightenment. I'm beginning to think that Mr. Sunshine was lying about the Emmaus walk. Day 88. I think I'm done. I've gone through months of hunting for food with... Nothing more than a spork from Chuck E. Cheese's. I'm not even hungry anymore. I don't think that's good. Day 102. If you're reading this, then I hope that you're not as miserably lost as I am. There's no way out. The Emmaus, the Emmaus, walk, Emmaus walk is a trap.
2: If you church even so much to suggest the idea, then run for your life, because once you're on that path, there's no going back. I can promise you that Jesus is not in these woods. I can't blame him. I don't want to be here either. I can't do this anymore. I give up. She must have died while writing it. She wouldn't have written... uh, uh, She would have just said it and then died. Well, on any account, we'll never do an Emmaus walk. Yeah, I hear you there. Wait, have you ever heard of any of the Megapasters doing an Emmaus walk themselves? You know what? I haven't. (laughs) Maybe the world would be better off if they did.
1: (laughs) This is Dr. Curtis Lyons...
0: Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that you don't have some dream destiny thingy that you're supposed to be fulfilling. And that would be a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring... Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says uh, join our crew. When you join our crew, you are picking the amount that you would like to support us with every month. That's right. We have four different ranks in our crew. And uh, the lowest rank is Powder Monkey. That's right. Powder Monkey, which is a $9.95 a month commitment. After that... Is uh, our Gunners made at twenty four ninety five a month? Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five a month, and Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you could uh, make make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box one three three four four Grand Fork, North Dakota, zip code five eight two zero eight. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's lesson on the book of Ecclesiastes. Here again is Pastor Jeremy Rhody.
1: All right, so uh, let's just wrap up this this little section and then I'll um, ask for comments or questions, okay? So to recap, better is the day of your death than the day of your birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this, namely death, is the end of all mankind. That's sort of you could say that's the beginning <laughs> of, of uh, the wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And the living will lay it to heart. You might even say the wise will lay it to heart. The fool won't. You know. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And what's in view here is not sorrow in general, nor is uh, Solomon saying, you know, it's better to be depressed than have a balanced uh, psychology. That's not what he's saying. Uh, nor is he saying it's better to be pessimistic than optimistic. That would also be a mistake. Christians don't have any business really being pessimistic or optimistic, to tell you the truth. Every once in a while, you'll get this, you know, you'll get this article or a Christian sermon or something where Christians. We ought to be optimistic about everything, right? And then you get some argument about the resurrection and how we're all going to win in the end. But optimism is a psychological phenomenon, just as pessimism is. And it has to do with one's judgment about what's likely to come. That's all pessimism and optimism is. Optimism, the psychological thing that everyone has, is transcended by the Christian idea of hope. I may be pessimistic as all get-out that the church is going to get any better in America, but I can hope. Right? That's different than optimism. I may... Uh, and then, so the flip side, you have optimism transcended by hope, you have pessimism transcended by uh, the dignity of despair. Okay. Whereas pessimism is just, eh, I don't think it's going to work out. The dignity of despair says, even if it does work out, it doesn't work out. We need another answer. You know, uh, even if I get miraculously healed of cancer or of uh, some terrible disease, I'm still going to end up in the grave. So you see, the dignity of Christian despair, the dignity of truth, outweighs any pessimism. So again, I I assert that while we're human beings, insofar as we're, you know, (coughs) foolish flesh, we have pessimism and optimism, but those are entirely different things than hope and despair. All right. That broadens us. So, sorrow is better than laughter is a way of saying, looking at things as they are, looking at the curse, is better than laughing it away. Looking at the reality of death. Death is what's in view. Death is better than birth. Looking at the reality of death and that sorrow Grants much more wisdom. It's much more closer to reality than laughter, which laughter could also be called madness in that respect. And Solomon calls it that. You know, when you're looking at a, when you're looking at hell, and you and you you laugh and tell a joke like it's nothing. Um, you know, I think I think to some extent of the tragedy of, okay, I know foolishly speaking they're kind of funny, but it's a tragedy, on final analysis. Where you've got a headstone, you know, and someone's put something funny there. Don Golfing. I saw that one on real headstone. No. I get it, foolishly speaking, that's kind of funny. It's also completely stupid. Completely stupid. And I think that's the point here, you know, it's sorrow is better than laughter. It would be better to look at the thing in the eye and tell and say what it is, as opposed to tell a joke about it and pretend it isn't. That that again would be toward what Luther calls being a theologian of the cross, calling a thing what it is, as opposed to calling this evil thing good and laughing at it. So death is just gone golfing, and that's calling an evil thing good. So the way of wisdom, the way of the cross, is uh, sorrow rather than laughter. You know, and that's the point too. Jesus is described never as a man of laughter, but as a man of sorrows. How often is it depicted that Jesus is laughing in the New Testament Scriptures? Never. How often is it depicted that he's crying? At least twice. At the death of Lazarus, And over the unbelief of Jerusalem, at least twice. He's a man of sorrows and a man of tears, not a man of joy and a man of laughter. Now, what am I saying? Of course, Jesus laughed. Of course, he had joy. Of course, uh, you know, he had feasting. Of course. But that's not what's dominant. That's not who he is. He is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Why? Because he knows that this world is no joke. It's serious business. In this, in this life, laughter is an alien work. <laughs> it is. It's an alien work. It's not a bad work. It's not a bad thing. It's just inferior to sorrow, which is the most accurate emotion overall. Okay, so we see that embodied in Jesus himself and depicted by the Holy Spirit in the collection of the scriptures that Jesus is presented to us, not as the happy, smiley, laughing, joking Jesus of American evangelicalism in those terrible paintings. Um, you know which ones I'm talking No, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, you know, he's painted, he's painted with a lot more reality by the Scriptures, by the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's a place for laughter, and there's a place for sorrow. But in the way of wisdom, in the way of the cross, sorrow is preferable to laughter. There's more honesty in it. There's more to be, uh, in terms of uh, uh, wisdom, there's more to be gained in the sorrow. Okay, and so, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad, which seems strangely paradoxical, but that's exactly the point I've already been fleshing out, is the sadness of face is the accuracy. You're looking at the thing, what it is, and you're calling it what it is, and your face is sad, but your heart is made glad because at least you know it. You know, whereas what? Aside from, I mean, the opposite of this would be, your heart is sad, but your face is laughing. Right? Which would be preferable? A broken heart that's laughing and putting on a good show? Right? Or a face that is depicting and accurately seeing things for what they are and mourning and weeping and a heart that is saying, yes, that's true. That's preferable to the other. All right, and again, in light of the cross, uh, that's specifically true. You know, sadness of fa- uh, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Um, those two things are combined entirely in the person of Jesus, and, and especially, most acutely, in his cross. You know, there is, there is suffering and there is sadness there, but there is also gladness in the deeper sense. Not the gladness of a superficial smile, but the gladness of a heart who has embraced the fullness of human misery in order to take it away. The gladness of a heart who is laying himself down for the lives of his sheep. The gladness and security of a heart who in the face of all hell and even the abandonment of God can cry out to God. Okay. One last thought. That's, chapter, or that's verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. So this ties together some of what I've been saying. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, also in the context of Ecclesiastes, in our reading in it, all those eat, drink, and be merry passages find their limit here, don't they? Yeah, eat, drink, and be merry, because those are gifts of God. They're good. And yet, those are limited, because if you make your life that, if you make your life one lived in the house of mirth, then you're going to end up with the heart of a fool. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. All right, and then he goes on to some uh, concrete stuff, and and we'll see in the next few verses that it flits around just a little bit. Are there any uh, questions on those first four verses that we've talked about, anything I mentioned related?
3: Two things. Um, Whenever I see the sign eat, drink, and be merry for Christmas celebrations, I think, yeah, but it ends for tomorrow we die. But now (laughs) I understand that that's true. Be happy because we're going to die. There's a double double entendre there. Right, once
1: we've received the cross, yeah. I mean, so you look at this thing called death, and it's objective and it's just there, and it's a fact, right? I mean, the event of death itself for you or for anyone else is a fact. It's not religious, it's not philosophical, it's not an idea, it's a fact. Just what it is. Now, without the cross, that fact is nothing but curse. There is no good to it. With the cross, that fact is transformed. And that's what I meant, and I'm, glad, I'm so glad you brought this up, because that's, that, that's what I meant when I said the, the cross then becomes our interpretive key to the events of life. Right. Um, that's the problem of theodicy, of the defense of God, as it gets rid of the cross and it says, oh, death's okay, you know, maybe uh, the death of that is going to teach the living something. That's just stupid, insensitive, and if someone said that to me at the death of my son, I'd probably punch him in the face, and I'm not really a physically aggressive person. But that's the, that's the atrocity of the theology of glory, Right? Rather, through the cross, we don't have to defend God or go on these, oh, there's some hidden meaning, no doubt. You know, God is good type of stuff. And we can say, no, I know that God has an answer for this too. That God has not despised me or despised the dead one, but has joined him in his misery, joined him in his death in order to pull him up out of death, in order to pull him up out of the grave, literally. Yeah, so the the cross itself then becomes our reinterpretation of all that we see and experience. And that, that too, is where I've said, you know, the Christian walks in two worlds. We walk in two worlds at the same time. I mean, the facts are what bind those two worlds together, okay? But in one sphere, death has no answer, and in another sphere, death is embraced in the cross, All right, did I sort of speak to your point? Yes,
3: yes, thank you for crystallizing it more. The other thing, prompted by your sermon last week and by what you said today, I can connect a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief with the hope that Revelation says he will, and this struck me, he will wipe away all tears from our eyes.
1: Absolutely, absolutely right. And that's... that's, uh, a very concrete way of saying, "Sadness of face uh, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad." You know, it's the whole sad ordeal of the cross, right, that is going to result in the wiping away of every tear and the most profoundest joy and gladness of our hearts. Yeah, those two together. Okay, I see other hands. Bob.
2: Yeah, can we go back to our conflict and battle with God that we were talking about twenty minutes ago? Um, you know, I always. <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Am I too you worried? Did, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, can we? Uh, you know, I like to look at some of these things in the light of the Ten Commandments, especially this in the light of the commandment to love God. Yeah. Because the other side of all the commandments, and especially the other side of that commandment, is. Where we're at, where I think I'm at, is I have, a troub- I have trouble loving God. I'm mostly at conflict and mostly at bat- battle. And could you comment on what you were talking about in light of the, of the commandment to love God, yet we're not able to do that? Sure.
1: Yeah, I think you're alone in that, Bob. <laughs> So, uh, if we already did love God with all our hearts and all our minds and all the rest, then God wouldn't tell us to love Him, right? That's sort of an obvious thing that gets missed. You know, if my wife is already making me a sandwich, I don't say, Woman, make me a sandwich, right? So the very fact that He commands... Well, I don't say that anyway.
3: (laughs) Oh, dear.
1: <laughs> so <clears throat> so God doesn't tell us to do things we're already doing. That's the first and most obvious part about the law that we all miss and mess up. But uh, more to your point, Bob, and more to the context, it is impossible to love God apart from the cross. It's impossible to love God apart from the cross. And in the Old Testament way of loving God, it's loving God according to his promises. The promise of the Messiah and the deliverance he's done that, that foreshadow the messianic events. You know, but even if he saves you from the Egyptians, he hasn't yet saved you from Satan. You know, he saved you from slavery to making bricks, but he hasn't yet saved you from your sin. So there's a great deal of foreshadowing, but the whole point is you cannot love God apart from Christ and all that that entails and means. You cannot. In fact, if you try to, or if you say you do, you're dishonest and you're further away from the kingdom than someone who says, I hate God. Because when you hate God, you're in the right place. That's what's so stunning and shocking about Luther. When you hate God, you're in the right place. Because now you're ready for the cross. If you're still holding on to God, and he's a good guy in the sky, and I'm a good guy down here, and then what's unnecessary? the cross and insofar as the cross is unnecessary you are in so far distant from God but only in the hatred of God and in the crying out to God in the not loving God does he give you an answer and then you learn to love you know and in Christ is our love um, not that we loved him but that he loved us right um, and if we love God we know that it is because he has first loved Loved us. That's the whole point. And how does he love us? In this, the love of God is shown that he sent his only begotten Son. So the love of God is Christ, period. In Old Testament and in New, for all time and space, it is Christ and all that comes with him. But that's his love. And if you take any of that away, then nobody loves God. In fact, it's just all self-deceit. And the most honest step you can get is to say, I hate a God like that. Which is where Luther got. He got to where he hated God and came the gospel. And Ecclesiastes, if you've been paying attention to how it portrays God, I ain't loving this God very much. God who you go into his house, and and Solomon's wisdom is this, take heed, be careful, watch your step. That's not a God you love. That's not a father, is it? (laughs) No, the God of Ecclesiastes, the more you look at him, the less you're going to like him. You know, we pointed out how he's fickle. Those who please him, he blesses. Those who don't, aren't blessed. Um, the God of Ecclesiastes is a God without a cross. And what he's doing is hacking down that idolatry that we all have as fallen human beings. So, no, I actually love God. Me and the, me and the great creator are, all, are okay. Me and the good guy in the sky, he'll let me in because I'm a good guy down here. Okay, I talked that to death. That'll teach you to ask a question.
3: Um. This took Solomon. When did he write this book? Was he was he near death? Was he?
1: The thought is that this is toward the end of his life.
3: Okay. Yeah. Because I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about wisdom and what it is, and and Solomon and Ecclesiastes, and can a young person even read this book? Because Solomon had to go through all of these experiences before he could come up with you know, and be bashed and battered and driven back to the cross. And like you say, a good parent doesn't want to see their child get bashed and battered. And, you know, so how do we, you know, the cross is our, I'm using your quote here, mm-hmm. our cross is our interpretive key to the events of our life. How can we really experience that unless we've lived a while?
1: Yeah, it's it's an extremely slow-going process. It really is. Um, In teaching teaching, uh, confirmation kids, for a lot of kids, it starts clicking around adolescence. In fact, and this may be a bizarre thing to say, I find a lot more truth and clarity of thinking in the adolescent mind. Okay, now you also have, like, sophomoreism, like, I think I know everything, and it's so white and black. But with those, with those shortfalls come the strengths of looking a thing honestly in the eye. You know, sometimes you'll get an eighth grader who's plenty wise and plenty sarcastic, and they just don't want to play the game. They see it all as phony, you know. And that's, that's the kid that honestly, without reservation, I would hand in the book of Ecclesiastes, why, so he gets more depressed, no, so he uh, so that he reads this book and says, "Wait a minute, this is the Bible. Well, this is exactly how I feel. this is exactly what I see. this is exactly how the world is. In fact, this goes much further than I ever conceived. That was my experience with Ecclesiastes i don't know I don't know how it came to me. I, I found it when I was in about seventh or eighth grade, and it was about the only part of the Bible I liked for a good few years. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I, I'm not an alien. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're out of time. Let's pick up uh, next week. And um, again, we see then the love of God in the cross shining forth as our interpretive tool. And in that, in that love, then we have courage to live, courage to see things in a different way. The Lord be with you. Awesome,
0: awesome. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. Grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.